you go ahead, beloved, and open up your Bibles um, to Isaiah 44. And we're going to look tonight at grace prevailing. And um, this section of Isaiah that we're looking at tonight is a really encouraging and comforting text. Um, It is rich with promise, with the assurance of God's love, um, with, with, with... promises of his purpose for his remnant for spiritual Israel both in the Old Testament and the New you know the spiritual offspring of Abraham that trust in the Lord and it it is just it is a remarkable statement remarkable just record of the immense grace of God and the power of his electing love and so I want us to see tonight how this text really strengthens and confirms God's people by answering four um, essential questions. And I want to give them to you so you can be on the lookout for them as we read through these first eight verses. And the four questions that are answered by this text is, who are we? And whose are we? And who is the Lord? And who is the Lord for us? And so I want us to read this text together, and then we'll pray and we'll dig into it. So let's look at this. Let's read Isaiah 44, starting in verse 1. We'll read through verse 8, and then um, we'll pray and we'll get into this text. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and who will help you. Fear not. O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand, the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come, and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we need you to come and to teach us from your word. We need you to speak to us, Lord God, and to renew our minds and to renew our hearts and renew our souls. Lord, we need to hear a life-giving word from you. All about us is death. This world is filled with it. All around us, Lord God, is sin and degradation and decay. And in you alone, there is life. And so, Father, we are coming to you tonight because we want to hear you speak to us. We want to hear you speak 
to our need, to our soul. Lord God, there is enough superficiality in this world. We, Lord, we want what's real. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and that you would give me grace and unction, Lord, to teach your word accurately and faithfully and effectually. And I pray, Lord God, that you would move in the hearts of everyone in this room, Lord, to hear these words, that they might have the proper effect that you, that you determine, Lord God, upon each one of us. This is a precious time. And so I pray, Lord God, we would regard it in that way. And I pray, Lord God, you would, you would work mightily in our midst for our good. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at this text, beloved, really practically, this, is, um, this section of Scripture is really a continuation of the previous chapter. Okay, And I want you to kind of catch this with me. There, there at the end of the chapter, right, the Lord is speaking and laying out the sinful nature and the sinful failures and the wretchedness of, of the Jewish nation, right? And they had done much. They had, you know, fallen into idolatry. They had failed to worship and honor the Lord. And because of their transgressions of the law, right, God says they had, they had burdened the Lord with their sins and wearied Him with their iniquities. And that's quite a picture, isn't it? I mean, that is really quite a picture when you think about, you know, a people, his covenant people, like the people that he had rescued out of Egypt and, 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 and given, you know, a new land and, and a new life and had spoken to them a law and all of that, right? That they had, they had burdened the Lord. They'd become a, a weariness to him. And the truth was they were the authors of their own misery, Right? They, they were the authors of their own. They, were, they weren't in this present condition, you know, in exile and in servitude and, and in Babylon, but just mere happenstance. I mean, this just didn't happen to them, you know? I often think about that when, when people will talk about sin that they've committed and they'll say, well, you know, and it happened to me. Like it happened to them and, and they had no role in it at all. You know what I mean? Like you see that lots of times when people make false, you know, confessions of what they've done, especially like in the media world, you know, like famous people, when they, when they speak of their own transgressions and sins as if it's just something that befell them. And, you know, they had nothing to do with this. What, what they were experiencing, the Jewish nation, it was the just judgment and the discipline of the Lord for their idolatry. And, and I find it interesting. I, I do find it interesting that, you know, we were talking about this when we were on the, the lift camp. You know, we were talking about how the Tower of Babel was really the, the root of Babylon, you know? And I think it's interesting here that this nation that has been so enmeshed in, in idolatry, God sends them into exile, into Babylon, that is the, like, you know, I mean, the production line for idolatry. Just to get them sick of it, you know? And at the end of chapter 43, what God is reminding them is that really their sin had removed him from any obligation whatsoever to them. They, they'd broken covenant. And, and they couldn't demand then that he deliver them. But that doesn't mean that God's not going to deliver. What it does mean is that what he will do, what he does, is a free gift, a free gift that grows out of his own faithful love. Judah, the nation of Israel, can only be restored on the basis of sovereign grace and mercy. Not anything they can do. 
Not any good works, no amount of them, no merit that they can try to stack up. And you know what? When we think about it, what was true of Israel nationally and, 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 and individually is true of us, isn't it? It's true of us. It's our own sin that caused the great gulf between God and us and that has placed us you know, under His divine wrath. And so the question is, how can any of us be saved? Right? I mean, how can we? How can, how can any of us be delivered? And that's the great question for Israel, you know, and, and Judah, Judah, Israel, you can use them interchangeably now that they're in exile, but, you know, how could they be in the condition that they were in and yet God still fulfill his promise to Abraham of spiritual descendants that would be as numerous as the stars, right? How are they going to do that? How can, how can we, modern day sinners, be included in that promise? Well, here it is. It's only by God's grace, Right? In the midst of judgment and discipline, look, look at this with me. Put your eyes on it. God makes this promise in Isaiah 43 and verse 25, right? He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, for my glory is the idea. And I will not remember your sins. Now, he's detailing all of their sins right there in chapter 43, right? And he's talking about how Jacob is delivered to destruction and Israel to reviling. And he, but before that, he says, listen, I'm the one who blots out your transgressions. I will not remember your sins. And so the Lord's promise to Abraham. You remember what it was he, when, when Abraham believed God and he, God counted to him as righteousness? When Abraham was saved by faith. The promise that preceded that was this. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. So shall your offspring be. Now obviously, the promise here is a spiritual offspring. That's what he's promising to Abraham here. The promise of spiritual offspring for every tribe and nation and tongue. It will yet be fulfilled. And in this text in Isaiah 44, God tells us how he's going to do it. And the first thing we got to see, and praise God this is so, man. God has not abandoned his chosen people upon whom he has placed his love. He doesn't forsake his people. Look again with me at verses 1 and 2 again. I love it. He says, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun. Whom I have chosen. And those very first few words, right? But now here, it takes us back to what we read in the previous chapter, right? In Israel's sin. But really, only to do this to tell us that Israel and Judah's sin is not the final word. It's not the final word. It's not the, it's not the, you know, the determinative word. Jacob that, that was given over to destruction and Israel that was given over to reviling is now called to lift her head and, and to listen to yet another word from God. And God calls him servant and he calls him chosen, right? And the repetition of those words highlight God's unrelenting, unchanging, electing love for his people, right? They're not transgressors. They're not just sinners. They're not just rebels against. In God's eyes, they're servant and they're chosen, right? Because of his eternal love, right? An unrelenting love, a transforming and a faithful love. A love 
It's a love of faithful commitment and faithful pursuit and intimate knowledge. And in fact, we see that in the way that the Lord emphasizes that he formed them from the womb. Right? He formed them from the womb. And that he will help them. It's this picture of, of, of a love, you know, that kind of like the maternal love that begins at the moment a woman becomes pregnant, a, a woman who you know, loves her child. It's that, that connection that's unbreakable, right? And, and, and here's what we've got to see. And I, I say this a lot, but I want to emphasize this again. Election, beloved, is not a cold, sterile, detached doctrine. It's just not. Instead, what it speaks of is God's covenant love, right? It speaks of, of his covenant love from the very beginning and of his promise that he is going to deliver a people and make them an upright people despite their sin and their rebellion. And so what he says to him is this, look, my purposes are not done with you. And his remnant are not to be afraid of the judgment that is to come and of the consequences of sin because canceled sin leaves no room for fear. Not, not that, you know, you know, awe and reverence for the Lord, yes. Filial fear of God, yes. Worship and thanksgiving, yes. But not abject fear. Again, the promise. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. What a promise. And I want you to take notice of this title, Jeshurun. This is so great, man. This is, it's a, it's a name that means precious upright one. Or little upright one. It's, it's a symbolic and you know, poetic name that was used to describe Israel in her ideal character. Okay? It, it was used to describe Israel, you know, God's people, true Israel, what his people will yet become by his grace, upright and holy and blameless before his eyes, right? They're not by nature, right? And neither are we. But God's purpose of election is to do just that. That's the goal of God's sovereign election, right? That's what we see over in Ephesians chapter 1, for instance, where, where Paul writes, and, he, and he, he's exalting God. He's worshiping here. This is not a cold thing for him. He's worshiping. He's blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, for what purpose? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. There's nothing that we've done. All that we have done is, is, is run up an account of sin that has reached to the highest heavens. And God is the one. God is the one who pursues us with His everlasting love and who redeems us through the blood of Christ and who makes us holy and blameless before Him. God yet has His way with His chosen people. He does. And his plan can't be thwarted. 
And then he tells the remnant how he's going to do it. Look at verses 3 and 4. I love this. He says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. It's a word picture here. The first part of it. And the idea is this is just like water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground bring forth life, right? So God will pour out His Spirit upon their dryness and their thirst. He will pour out His Spirit upon their offspring, on those like them, and give them spiritual life. I want you to see what's going on here. In the ancient Near East, right? To have offspring was a promise of life to you. Okay? It wasn't just like, you're going to have kids, it's, but it was like a promise of vital life to you, the one that this promise is being made. But also, it, it was, a, it was a, a promise of blessing, right? It was a promise of blessing. And the, and the way it comes about is this. It's by God imparting Himself, pouring out His presence, right? That's the way in which the Lord brings new life to His people, through the enlivening, right? The enlivening. I love that. And the, and the, the renewing activity of the Lord's Spirit. And it becomes evident. It becomes evident in individual response. In this individual response and, and the formation and the creation of this people, once united in sin, that are now bound together by a common faith and trust in the Lord. Look at verse 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call in the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. The picture is of, of God, of spirit given. And of spirit empowered personal fate. Right? That will create this people that's united together. What... God is not saying here that everybody's going to be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, look, everybody in the world's not going to be saved. Everybody in Israel was not going to be saved. Everybody that was in the exile was not going to be saved. Okay? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that everybody's going to come to faith. And that, in fact, is made clear by the phrases, this one will say, and another will call, and another will write on his hand. But here's the point. His chosen servants will be. They will be. They will be. And it may seem that the path to their salvation is, it, it makes no sense. It's all over the place. It's, you know, this, this jagged road that makes no, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever that why go through this and that and the other thing to eventually arrive at the Lord. And yet God is orchestrating it all. He's orchestrating it all. In this context, you know, what's going on is what, what we would call nominal Christians or nominal Israelites, right? In name only. They're becoming true spiritual Israelites. Got to remember that the remnant grew in exile. Like the remnant that was exiled, well, that wasn't all of it. Like people came to faith in the exile. But even more, you, we can look beyond this to, to, to God's chosen Gentiles from throughout the world, right? And the work of the Spirit is going to make, you know, one to say, I am the Lord's. And to identify himself with the people of God. That's the idea of, you know, uh, call in the name of Jacob. 
that I'm his. He owns me. I belong to him, right? I belong to his covenant people. Another will ride on his hand. The Lord's. It's an idea of pledging his life and his strength to God to do his will and to serve him gladly, right? And when we read that, beloved, I want you to see this. Is that not the essential like realization of what it means to be the Lord's? Isn't it? To be redeemed by him? I've been studying in 1 Peter recently, and, and I, it, it's amazing how Peter talks about this in, in, in his epistle. I'll just, I'll just read three texts to you very quickly. 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 3 through 5. Again, you know what? Here is Peter rejoicing and, and praising God for his great grace. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last Time. Does this not parallel Isaiah? And, and then down in verse 13 through 16, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Israel needed to hear that. We do, Right? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then the last one, chapter 2, starting in verse 9. You're a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. And the parallels are remarkable, are they not? For all intents and purposes, Israel and Judah, they ceased to be a nation. And apart from God's mercy and His grace, there would be no, no nation of Israel ever again through whom the Messiah would come. Once you were not a people. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, beloved, here's the thing, right? This, this dovetailing with, with Isaiah, all of this speaks to our fundamental identity, doesn't it? Who we are. Whose we are. So often it's so easy for us to forget that, isn't it? We get in the midst of the world that we're in and the things that we have to do and the, you know, the tasks that are before us and the obligations that we have and everything else. And, and it's easy to forget these things. And we do it to our own detriment, right? Who we are, whose we are. It means more than anything else except what God says next. Where he emphasizes his identity to the exclusion of everyone else. He reminds the exiled remnant. He reminds us there is no other God. And praise God, since there is no other God, there, no one can stand in the way and nothing can stand in the way of his determined purpose. Amen? Amen. 
<laughs> Look what he says in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. You know, but we need to sit on this for a second. We really need to feel the weight of these words. We need to feel and grasp the significance of these words, right? In a world that likes to try to define God in all kinds of different ways, right? This is who God is. This is who the Lord says He is, right? He is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the great I am. The self-existent one. Who has within himself all life and all potentiality and all power. He is the faithful covenant-making God. That's who he is. Start there. He's the king of Israel. Of true Israel. Of his people, of his church. And he will not allow his people to be destroyed. He's not a king that allows his people to be conquered. Right? And that's because he's their redeemer. Not only is he king, but he is rescuer and savior of repentant and believing sinners. And he has all power because he's the Lord of hosts. He's the warrior leader of an angelic army that does his bidding and acts on behalf of his people and for the praise of his glory. That's who he is. And he's the first and he's the last. He doesn't derive his being from anybody else. He's dependent on no one. And he remains supreme forever. He's the only true and living God. He's sovereign over history from the great things to the small things over nations and individuals, over past and over future events. He alone is God. Enough with the dishonorable and disreputable and offensive diminuations and and reductions in who God is. This is who He is. And Israel needs to hear it, and we need to hear it. Because the reason for our weakness, quite often, is that we forget who God is. And look at verse (laughs) 7. He says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. I chose for myself an ancient people. And I'm collecting them is the idea. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. The point here is not that there's anybody who might actually do this. That's not the point. Rather, the point here is God is in a class by himself. He's incomparable in every way. And, And it's not so much, you know, that that Isaiah, or that the Lord here is, is, is exposing the false gods and the idols as being worthless. He will do that. We will see that next week. And one of the most scathing and like satirical 
takedowns of idolatry anywhere in Scripture. But it's more about the demonstration of God's glory as the true God and therefore as the security of His people. Which is why we read what we do in verse 8 when He says, Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you were my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. In other words, the Lord is saying, look, don't be afraid of the judgment to come. Don't be afraid of the future. Look, you are witnesses to the fact that, that when I say I will do something, that is exactly what I do. You are witnesses. You have been witnesses to the truthfulness of my words. Right? And the idea is, the Lord is getting across, look, His word is trustworthy. And, and we can and we must take Him at His word because God speaks the truth. His word is truth. It's reliable because it's backed by His character, which is unimpeachable. God's not a man that He should lie, right? He alone can be depended upon. That's why we don't need some external source to help us understand the word of God. We don't need something to authenticate the Word of God for us. It authenticates itself. We don't need to burn energy trying to defend the truth of the Word of God. Charles Spurgeon was right. Let the Word of God out of its cage and it will defend itself. It's like a lion. What we got to do is believe it. And believe it above everything else. Then last, God calls himself the rock. This is not a name Dwayne Johnson should use. No, I mean it. This might be one of my favorite names for the Lord in the Old Testament. He's a rock. It speaks of permanency, doesn't it? He's a rock. The refuge of his people. He's the one who gives us life. He's trustworthy. He's unchanging. In fact, he's the only solid reality in our lives. In case you haven't noticed, other people let you down. And you fail and you falter. But God stands firm. In fact, I love how the Lord... Our rock is described in Scripture. Moses said this. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. The rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is He. In verse 15 of that same chapter, He's the rock of our salvation. In verse 18, He's the rock who brings His people into existence. The rock who bore us. In verse 30, he's the rock who fights for his people. David, I read it to you just at the beginning, said in Psalm 18, verses 2 and 3, the, rock, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Why? Because he's my rock. And then Psalm 31 Incline your ear to me. Hear my prayer. Right? Rescue me speedily. 
Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. He is unchangingly our everything. That's who God pledges himself to be to us. The question is, hey, think about this. Why, why does the Lord need to tell us this over and over and over again? Why? We are hard-headed. Because we're thick of skull. You know? It's because we too easily forget and because we're sorely tempted to look for life where it can't be found. Or to add to God, right? Or, or to supplement Him. He needs help. Or to rely on things that cannot bear the weight of our souls. Only God can. And He does. He does. The question is, do we trust Him? I think about this sometimes. You know, like, you know how it must please God when we take Him at His word? Think about, think about if, you know, you had a wife and you tell her, I love you. And you mean it. And this is not the old joke of, I told you I love you and if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. That's, that's not what this is. Listen to me. What if you've had a wife and, and, and you, you love her and then and, and you say you love her and you demonstrate your love for her and you show your love for her and it's never enough. And you gotta find some new way to prove your faithfulness and your love. I'm so grateful that God is long-suffering with us. Aren't you? I really am. This, the emphasis in this section of Isaiah is, is really clear. The Lord. He is God. And there's no other God. And, and no one and nothing can do what the Lord can do. And so the question for all of us is whether or not we'll honor Him as God. And look to God the Son as Redeemer and Savior and Master and humble ourselves and trust in Him alone and believe His words and believe His heart and have our transgressions blotted out and our sins remembered no more and then live as fearless children of God. That's what, that's the heart of this. I'll close with just a few takeaways from what we've read tonight that that we really need to think about deeply, meditate upon. First thing is this. We, we must be in awe of the depth and the measure and the persistence of God's immense mercy to a sinful people. Not just Israel in this text, but us. Right? Nothing can derail the heart of God for us. Nothing can derail the heart of God for His people. Now, do you believe that? Second, we ought, to, we ought to be in awe of the faithfulness of God 
to keep his promises. He keeps every one. You don't know anybody with that track record. He keeps every one. His promise to Abraham and to his offspring and to us. Here's the thing. It's because of God's unchanging nature. It's because he is that rock, right? That the words of Romans 8, 28 through 30, that we can take those to heart. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things, all things. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Look, things may not always go as we wish. That's just life. But God's purpose will. God's purpose will go exactly as He wishes. And it will be fulfilled in the lives of His people. Third thing, I think. Is it third? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We must really be in awe. Take time to be in awe of God's electing love and what that means for us. That before the foundation of the world, He bound Himself by an oath to us. For our ultimate good. Fourth, we got to believe that nothing can overcome God's good purposes for His people. No power can stand against His sovereign purpose because He's the only true power. You think about that? He's the only true power. He's the only true God. There's, there's not this, this cosmic arm wrestling match between God and Satan. The devil is God's devil. He answers to him. There's no great war going on that that we... The war's done. Whatever number this is now. Number next. (laughs) We must embrace the life-giving blessing of God's Spirit. I mean, think about this, man. Like... It's the Spirit that gives life, right? Think about this. God with us. God in us. God for us. With us, in us, and for us. That's the Holy Spirit. Next to last, we've got to rejoice that there's no place for fear in this world for the people of God. Think about how fearful we are sometimes. Some things, I mean, we can be so quickly moved from everything's fine to like fear and chewing our fingernails, right? But when we rest in God as the rock, He's the one who overcomes all the fears of His people. Because the proper fear, the filial fear, family fear, the awe and the reverence of God drives out every other And then last, we must let this text definitively answer the questions of who we are and whose we are and who God is 
and who God is for us. Because here's the truth, beloved. When you've got those questions settled in your soul, so are all of the basic and essential questions of life and how you are to live. You answer those questions and everything else falls into place. It really does. Imagine being the exiles. We are, we're exiles in this world, but hearing these words. God calling you Jeshurun, my little upright one. When your history is anything but. What is it? It's all by grace, isn't it? It's all of mercy. John, will you, will you pray for us, brother? Father God, you are all powerful. Lord, all that we have comes from your hand. All the good things that we have come from your hand. And we look at these questions like who we are. God, we are worthless sinners. We are rebels to your will. But you have caused us to be born again to a living hope. Lord, one that is unfading, that will never perish. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And I thank you for saving us, for placing your electing love upon us. Lord, when we weren't searching after you, when we weren't inquiring, Lord, you pursued us and you arrested our souls. Thank you. I am so thankful that the righteousness of Christ has been placed upon me and that the Holy Spirit has applied his death to me personally. God, our only response should be absolute joy with hearts full of worship. Lord, we should long to desire you and serve you for all of our days, forsaking everything of this world so that we might bring you pleasure and you glory because you alone deserve all of it. And it is all going to you. It's not that you just deserve it. Lord, you are getting it all either way. So Lord, use us as your servants to bring glory to your name. I thank you for this time. I pray that these words that we heard tonight wouldn't just bounce around in our skulls and then leave as soon as we walk out of here but God, that we would fixate upon them and that we would remember who we are and whose we are and Lord, who you are and who you are to us. I just thank you for this time, Lord, and I pray that it would bring, bring to effect everything that you've planned. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.